Well, we are in a, a short series this Christmas season as I finish the exposition of Second Timothy. And before we start Mark, sometime in January, I'm not sure if we'll start beginning of January. I'm kind of leaning towards late January. There's a, another series I want to I want to preach for us before we get there. But before we get there, I thought it'd be good to step away, step back, so that we can see the forest, lest we get lost in the trees. Our sermon series is entitled "The Big Picture," and uh, there it is, like that. How everything more or less fits together. The outline we're using has four words. Let's say them all together: creation, fall, redemption, restoration. All right, let's say them again. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And just so you know, these words aren't unique to me. I didn't pull these words out of just, hey, thinking about the Bible. These are all over. All you got to do is type in creation, fall, redemption, restoration in Google. And Google will give you millions of sites of people who have talked about these four categories in which to summarize all the Bible. This is the story of the Bible. God, Bible begins with a creation account. God through His infinite power, created a good world. Everything was good. Plants were good. Animals were good. Men, women, marriage was good. God called it very good. But Adam and Eve fell in their sin. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the effects of that are still felt by every single one of us today. You have aches and pains in your knees. You have... um, Heartache, trouble, sorrow, sin, it's all this result of sin that has brought death into the world, pain and suffering, it's all this result of the fall which we'll look at today. And all this pain and suffering teaches one thing. It teaches there's something dreadfully wrong with this world in which we live today. We need someone to fix it. It's broken and we need some help. And the good news is that Jesus Christ came to be that help. And that's where we flow into the redemption of Jesus Christ. That God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that redemption is available to all who believe. And so I just call all of you to believe in Christ. Trust Him. Because He's the only way that we can get out of our fallen condition of where we are. To know that sin's forgiven and the freedom that comes there. But, but the story doesn't just end with our, our sins forgiven. The story ends by the fact that God is going to restore everything back to where it was in creation and know better, better than it was than creation. A perfect world where we're all redeemed, those who believe and trust in Christ. And we're with Him in all of His glory in a new heaven and a new earth Everyone worshiping the Lamb of God who sits on the throne. That's restoration. God's people finally together with God in God's place. It's told in the last two chapters of the Bible. When God is reigning, His people are submitting. No sorrow, no sin, no sickness. Peaceful world where King Jesus reigns and all His people are gladly submitting to Him. That's the story of the Bible. But... Let me remind you that's also the story of our lives as believers. See, God has created us, and as Romans 3.23 says, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that we need a Redeemer. And as we believe in Jesus, who redeems us from our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, forgives all of our sin, then we today realize that our best life isn't today, but we know that someday we'll be restored to a perfect life 
with God the Father. That's our story, right? Creation, we've fallen, redeemed in Christ, but anticipating something much better, the restoration of all things. Well, last week I focused upon the creation, Genesis 1 and 2. This week we focus upon the fall. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And and though that's where we're going to start, we're going to spend about half of our time here in Genesis chapter 3. My text, if you have your your bulletin with you this morning, if you grabbed it, it was on the table out there. My, my text goes from Genesis 3 to Malachi 4. Uh, I was talking to some kids this week and talked about my text and uh, how big it was. And uh, in my Bible, that's like 800 pages. And I was teasing with them that I'm going to read the whole text. And they said, you are? <laughs> I said, no, that would take some days to do that. We're not going to do that. But basically, that is my, my, my text is all, all from the fall, just, just telling the story. And the Old Testament really is a story about not only the fall, but all the repercussions and implications of the fall, examples, illustrations of the fall, but it creates within us a yearning for the Savior, the Redeemer, and anticipates that, that there's someone who's going to get us out of this mess. And so that is my text. I, I, I weekly email with some pastor friends of mine, in the middle of the week, we, we email each other our text and our title, uh, what we're preaching on this Sunday, that we might just pray for each other about what, what we're preaching about. And this week I put forth my title, Big Picture, Fall, Genesis 3 to Malachi 4. And then I put a little note. I said, I win the prize for the largest text. So pray for me. So let's pray as we just go to His Word. Father, I pray that we would come to Your Word um, humbly, I pray that we would come to Your Word eagerly, that we might see where it is the world got messed up and just see the lessons for us as well. And I pray, O Lord, that You might show us our sin. It's not like we would act any different. If we were Adam and Eve, we would fall as well. And we act just like the Israelites who know You and pledge obedience and yet many times fail and fall. I pray, O Lord, that You would protect us from being Pharisees who have some measure of religious practice in us. We come to church each Sunday and yet, God, that becomes our our trust and our boast and our pride. But may we realize that we are all sinners saved by grace. And there's no reason that we ought to look down upon anybody for their sin because our sin is great. And that You, O Lord, have redeemed us. And I pray in the message today as we think about the fall and just see sin abound in Your Bible, Your Word to us, I pray that where sin abounds, grace might superabound. As Romans 5.21 says, that it might stir within our hearts that we would rejoice even the more so to see the glories of our Savior who has redeemed us from our sins. So help us, Lord, help me to know how to, how to say and communicate all these things. Just there's so much. What do I pick from in the Old Testament? would pray You'd help. So be our teacher now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Genesis 3 is probably the saddest story in the Bible. The context comes, Genesis 1 and 2, where God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. Everything was given to him that he needed. He was provided for in every way. Food, a wife, his work was satisfying to him. Colin Smith paints a great picture of this. He says this, Imagine life in Eden. 
the place God gave the first man and woman. Adam's work was fulfilling and fascinating. He enjoys the companionship of his wife and the company of God. When he's hungry, he reaches up and picks the fruit from the trees. His whole life is one of blessing and joy. Just kind of putting some shoe leather to the fact that God said that the world was very good. That all changed here in a moment of minutes, probably. Certainly less than an hour this took place. It's a simple story. It's a story of temptation. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Here was God was good to Adam. Gave him everything that he'd ever want. Nothing more than he or Eve could ever need. But the serpent then attacked, I hope you see this, attacked the goodness of God. The creation is all about the power of God, yes, but the goodness of God flows over and over and over again. And here Satan is attacking the goodness of God. You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. I mean, that's a flat out lie, but it also subverts God's intent when He spoke about, about what Adam and Eve could eat. God had said, chapter 2, verse 16, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. The picture there is, is of grace and abounding grace. Kindness. Freely. You can eat anything. Just this one restriction. And then Satan then takes it and switches it and said, you can't eat anything from the trees? Like subverting even the, the kind, gracious perspective of God. Where Satan painted God as a restrictive God. Where, where God was one who said, no, enjoy yourself. Enjoy the garden. Eve's response wasn't perfect. It was sufficient, but it wasn't, wasn't perfect. She responded in verse 2, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, she missed it a little bit. God spoke to Adam in chapter 2, verse 16, You may eat freely, and in translating that to Eve, maybe something got left out. Maybe it was Adam's fault. Maybe it's Eve's fault. But she just said, we can eat from the trees. Missing this freely aspect of things. And then she even added this touching it. You can't, you can, God didn't say you couldn't touch it, though that's probably wise behavior not to even touch the tree you can't eat from because if you don't touch it, you're not going to eat from it. But miss it a little bit. But overall, got the thrust of God's Word. She said, no, I can eat anything except just not, not this one. And then Satan again, with the door of doubt opened just a crack, stormed to the attack. He said this, You will not die, or you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan here is giving Eve a reason to think that God didn't have their best in mind. See, God doesn't want you to eat because then you will know good and evil and then you will be like God and God will have competition and God doesn't want competition. God wants to keep you low and He wants to keep you small. God doesn't have your good in mind. He's got His good in mind. He's just trying to keep you down low. And it's the goodness of God is attacked. The classic lure of temptation takes place. It takes place in all of your hearts and minds whenever you're tempted. Verse 6, when the woman saw the tree, the tree was good for food. And there was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate 
And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Adam probably standing right there the whole time, watching this all go on, abdicating his leadership role in the family. That's how the process of temptation works, right? It starts with a look. It progresses with a desire. And then it culminates in the actual sin. One simple bite, one simple fruit, and how great was the crash. You know, this summer, our family vacation in Rocky Mountain National Park. And uh, one of the places that we saw, which is like, I think, one of my favorites of everything we saw there in the park, was uh, the alluvial fan that was caused when a man-made dam at Lawn Lake gave way. And I'm not sure, i got some pictures there on the children's notes. You can see it. There was a, a man-made lake that they dammed it up. And uh, what happened was this dam broke and so all the, the water in this lake just started coming down and all this debris, you can see it's called an alluvial fan. It just fans out all this stuff. And it was, let's see, i got the, the numbers here, 220 million gallons of water came down the, the countryside and into the campground, killed three people, and then went down and caused $31 million of damage in Estes Park, the city. Now, that's, that's a ways away. That's just so much water that came down that caused that destruction. But it was 30 years later that we were there and the debris is still visible and, and still very much there. We enjoyed walking up the boulders and seeing the, the rapids coming down. It was, it was a great time. Um, but when investors went, investigators went back to determine, okay, what is it that caused this dam to give way, they determined that, here it is, quote, a deterioration of lead caulking on the joint between the outlet pipe and the gate valve led to internal erosion of the earth-filled dam. Deteriorating caulk. $31 million of damage. Caulk. $31 million of damage. Just a, a little bit caused huge damage. And so also, the fall of man, one small bite from one simple fruit told un, made untold damage throughout generations and generations and generations, and we feel it today. Consider Paul said in Romans chapter 5, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Just one sin brought death to all because we all sinned in Adam. Adam's sin brought evil into the world. Adam's sin brought death into the world. You will die and I will die because of Adam's sin. And it wasn't merely just sin and death that resulted. Our condemnation came about as well. Romans 5.18 Through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation to all men. When Adam sinned, we were condemned. Condemned to hell. It's the effect of sin. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam was made sinners and Eve were made a sinner. And they passed that on to everyone else who would ever live. We are made sinners because of Adam's sin. And condemnation fell upon us as a result of that. And I want you to feel the weight of this, that one man's action, just a simple fruit taken from a tree, sin, death, and condemnation to all of us. It's not just a little story. I mean, it, this then sets the context for the, the entire Old Testament 
And what we see basically is creation gone awry. Run amok. Notice the curses that, that come next. Right, start here in verse 7. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of a Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of a Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to me, she gave it. She gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. How things have changed. Before sin, there was no shame. Husband and wife, naked, not ashamed, walking with God, enjoying God, enjoying the creation. They weren't ashamed of each other, weren't ashamed from God, and now they find themselves ashamed of each other. They're naked. They need to find a place to hide because sin always does that in darkness. They find God walking and they're afraid from Him. The blame game goes on. When Adam was talking, he blamed it on Eve. And when Eve was confronted, he blamed it on the serpent. That's all the result of sin. I mean, these are more sins coming up. Rather than owning up to their sin... They tried to blame it, tried to blame it on circumstances or their environment or whatever, rather than what we ought to do is just say, I was wrong, it was me. Rather, they sought to blame something else. God saw it through it all, and He cursed them in the reverse order the serpent, and then the woman, and then the man. Let's look at these curses that have come upon them. And these curses have, have implications as much as Adam's sin does. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, tempted Eve. Adam to sin. Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now there's a, a reason why snakes crawl on their bellies. It's because God cursed them. There's a reason why our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, because the devil was our first enemy. And our first enemy is still our enemy, and we fight that battle. We'll come back to verse 15. Verse 16, to the woman. Here's the curse to the woman. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Any ladies felt the curse? Pain in childbirth? I know you have. You're just not raising your hand. Pain in childbirth? I know my wife has. It's a result of the fall. Reminded every time a child comes into the world. Pain in marriage? Does that exist? It's a direct result of the fall. Listen, wherever there's a bad marriage, you can trace its origin back to the fall. Two sinners living together. As Paul Tripp wrote a book about marriage, he said, what did you expect? When two sinners are living together, 
And whenever a husband particularly rules over his wife, rather than loving her as Christ loves the church, he can trace it right back to the fall. Here's the curse on marriage. Verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband. You will want your husband. You will, you will love. You will, you will desire that. And in some sense, you'll desire maybe to rule over him. And yet, as he rules over you in an ungodly way, it's the result of the fall. Rather than ruling as a servant does, as Jesus did, it's a result of the fall. The curse came to Eve. So Adam, the curse against Adam, verse 17, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it will grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And here we see, catch this, that the sin of Adam affects more than just the human race. The sin of Adam even affects the ground and, and the plants. Before the fall, no thorns. Before the fall, no thistles. But, but now, because of the fall, there's been something else that's been changed about creation, that thorns and thistles grow. Farming professions become much more difficult. But it's not only farming. What's happened to this world also, we live in a world of deterioration. We need paint. We need painters because of the fall. We need repairmen because of the fall. We have antiques because of the fall. We need to rebuild constantly because of the fall. Because everything deteriorates. And Darren, as he read from Romans 8... We know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. There's just a pain of creation because the fall of man has inflicted this pain and turmoil upon the creation. The sin of Adam and Eve affected everything in the planet. And we've been driven away from the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 20. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, catch this. We were in the garden. Adam and Eve cast out. And if they tried to get back in, there was this cherubim. They could not get back in. They could not get to that tree of life. I think they, after they were out in the world for a while, they wanted to get back in there. And all of us have a longing to get back in the Garden of Eden. But we can't. When Adam and Eve sinned, humankind walked out that one-way door and they can't come back again. Maybe you've seen those at airports. You know, they, they have... Uh, have rotating things that kind of rotate around here like this. You go out one way, but you can't go back the other way. And that's what it is. We can't go back from the garden, into the garden. At least the way we came. There's going to be something else that takes us to paradise. And that's my message tomorrow, next week. Redemption and restoration in weeks to come. Jesus had to come to bring us home. It was our doing to get us out, and it was Jesus' doing is going to bring us back in and we got a hint of that back in verse 15. I want to go back there. 
Right? Here's, here's the curse to the serpent. Between your seed and her seed, that is between your progeny and her progeny, there's going to be a man, he's going to be the God-man, he's going to rise up, bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Satan's going to crush his heel, but Christ's going to crush his head. Satan delivers the flesh wound, but Christ delivers the mortal wound. And of course, that took place when Jesus was upon the cross, he received the flesh wounds, crucified, died, but the fact that he raised again showed it was only a, a flesh wound. Jesus conquered the grave and delivered us from the death blow of Satan. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus conquered that. He's brought us back into there. Let me, I quoted from Romans chapter 5 earlier, but I only quoted half the verse. I want to, want to quote the other half of the verses now. Note the two men, the two acts, and the two results from Romans chapter 5. There's Adam... And his act and his result, and there's Christ and his act and his result. Adam sinned and brought condemnation. Christ acted in righteousness and brought justification in life. Listen to this. Romans 5.15 If by the transgression of the one, Adam, many died, much more did the grace of God by the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which comes to the one who sins. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. You've got two men, did two acts, had two entirely different results. It's by the way why the historicity of Adam is so important. We didn't evolve from apes. God created man and woman because there's one man who sinned and brought sin into the world because there's another man who brought an act of righteousness going to bring righteousness into the world as well. There weren't many Adams. There was one Adam. Alright. And this is, this is anticipating that. Even right there at the fall, we're anticipating the redemption that's coming. Verse 15. Now, let's, let's think about how bad the fall was. Now, I'm going to pick up some pace here. We're going to go through Genesis a little slower and then we're going to kind of launch as we get to Malachi chapter 4. I want to see the, the damage done by the fall. In Genesis 4, took over there verse 8. We see Cain killing his brother Abel. Cain told Abel his brother and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. One generation from the garden... One generation from paradise, and already you have a generation of murders. Maybe that gives you a hint of how bad it is. Genesis chapter 5. We see just a genealogy. You might say, well, that's, that's pretty boring. Well, in some regard it is, but there's this repeated theme again and again and again and again, which is all caring from the fall. And the theme is this, that he died. Look at verse 5. Talking about Adam. All the days Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Look at Seth, verse 8. He died. Look at Enosh, verse 11. He died. Look at Kenan, verse 14. He died. Look at Mahaliel, 
Verse 17, he died. Look at Jared. Verse 20, he died. Enoch, by the way, is the only exception. He walked with God. God took him up. Look at verse 27. Methuselah, he died. Look at verse 31. Lamech, he died. Again and again, there's the testimony that because of Adam's sin, death has come and all these people have died. Because of Adam's sin, death entered the world. Well, look at how bad sin is. Genesis 6, verse 5. Is it at those times that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's the breadth of sin. There's the depth of sin. The breadth of sin. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. The idea here is that God's kind of looking back upon the whole earth and says, wow, there's a lot of sin there. And then the depth of sin. Then He goes to look at each person. He says, okay, where, how deep is the sin? Every intent are the thoughts of his heart only evil continually. It's not that our hearts are evil. It's, it's not only that the, the thoughts of our heart are evil. It's that even, it says, the intent of the thoughts are evil. What we form, the, the formation of the thoughts of our hearts are evil. And it's not as if they're, they're, they're partly good and partly evil. No. It says that they're only evil. It's not that our evil thoughts are only evil sometimes. No, it's that they're evil continuously. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continues. So God looks back and says, there's a breadth of sin, and he just starts digging and digging into our hearts. He's going to find more and more and more sin. It's the effect of the fall. We are fallen creatures. And so much so, verse 6, God was sorry that He had made man on the earth and He was grieved in His heart when He saw the wickedness of people. And so, what God did is He wiped them all out. Genesis 6, 7, and 8 tell all about the flood. I destroyed every living thing except those on the ark, which Noah and Mrs. Noah and their three sons and their three sons' wives ate on the ark and then all the animals that God had brought there to be saved upon the ark. Other than that, he just started over. Okay, we're just going to start this thing again. Unless you think that, that the wickedness of man were only back then and that we're not wicked today, look at chapter 8, verse 21. After Noah offered the sacrifice, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Don't be surprised the sin of your kids. When you see your kids sin, you say, ah, the fall. You have Adam to thank for that. But here it is, after the fall, and God says, yes, they're evil. People are evil. But I'm not going to destroy everything with a flood again. And then the rest of the Old Testament here is illustration after illustration after illustration of the wickedness of man. All right, so let's let's just think about Genesis. We could go to each of these instances and and go to them, but in chapter 11 we see the Tower of Babel. That's uh, um, that's pride. We're going to build up. We're going to be like God. We're going to make a name for ourselves. There's a sin of pride coming. Genesis chapter 11, chapter 12. We see Abraham fearful of men and lying. In chapter 16, we see Abraham being unfaithful in his marriage as he entered into Hagar. Chapter 19, we see the the sin of homosexuality which culminates in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 25, we see Jacob stealing the birthright from his brother Esau. 
She took advantage of his weakness. In chapter 27, Jacob stealing the blessing from Esau through deception and manipulation. In chapter 29, we see the treachery of Laban who gives Leah to Jacob rather than Rachel for whom he had labored for seven years. Chapter 32, we see the family strife and tensions as Jacob is fearful of meeting with Esau whom he had wronged years earlier. In chapter 34, we see Shechem defiling Dinah. Awful picture there what took place. And then the slaughter of Shechem that came about from the patriarchs. Unless you think these patriarchs are real righteous people, they just slaughtered a whole city. In anger, what was done to their daughter. We see chapter 37, jealousy in the family, which prompts sons of Jacob to sell Joseph into slavery and cover it up for decades. Living with a lie for decades. In chapter 8, we see prostitution taking place. I mean, it reads like a soap opera of our patriarchs. Sin abounds in the Bible. And even before we get out of the very first book of the Bible, we see all the, all the effects of sin upon this earth. All the effects of the fall. Something's wrong. Someone needs to come and fix it. And one of the ways, though, especially that um, sin exhibits itself is, is by those people who knew better, who had God's Word, had heard it, who knew it, who pledged their obedience to it, and then fell away and sought after other things. Right? See, when, when people of privilege know what the Lord requires and pledge their obedience to the Lord, when they fall from following the Lord, it's an indication of how deep sin is within us. So turn to Exodus chapter 24. So Genesis, Exodus, next book. Again, I hope you sense that we're just speeding up here. Exodus 24, we find Moses returning from the presence of the Lord where he'd be given the Ten Commandments and other laws in hand. And he presents the law to people. Exodus 24, verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Great statement of obedience. Great pledge. Wonderful. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel. They offered burnt offerings, sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood put on the basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And so Moses took the book and sprinkled it and the people saying, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. On this day, Israel entered a covenant with the Lord to walk in His ways. And they pledged their obedience. They said, we're going to obey. And then you can see how strong sin is that 40 days later, they abandoned that one. Exodus 32. Turn over there. Moses on Mount Sinai, the presence of the Lord. The people were anxious because He was gone. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off your gold rings which are in the ears of your wives and your your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from that hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. He made it into a molten calf. And then he said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron, who should have known better, who saw all the plagues of Egypt, right there with Moses, made a proclamation said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. Said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone and that my anger might burn against them, that I might destroy them and I will make out of you a great nation. Forty days after pledging their obedience, they're out idol worshipping and frolicking and dancing about in an improper way. And God was so put up with them, He's ready to start over with Moses like He did with Abraham. But Moses would have none of it. I love the prayer of Exodus chapter 33. We don't have time for that. But so they, Israel endured another generation because of Moses' interceding work. But here you see this, right? The, the, the generation, God just tolerated them, but they were a sinful generation. You see that repeating itself. Joshua, chapter 24. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. All right? We're picking up some speed here. Because I'm eyeing Malachi chapter 4 and I'm eyeing my time here. So Joshua 24. Just forward 40 years till Israel had come into the promised land, which there's sin and unbelief in the whole process there getting that. Also, but we find Joshua recounting the faithfulness of God. We get a summary verse in, in verse 13 of Joshua 24. I gave you a land in which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them, and you are eating of the vineyards and the olive groves which you do not plant. There's blessings. I'm just giving you that you didn't build it, but you get to enjoy it now. Now, therefore, Joshua says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the rivers in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, well then you choose for yourselves today whom you serve. Were the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here it goes. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and presented, preserved us through all the way in which we went among all the peoples through which the midst we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who live in the land. Here it is. Pledge number one. We also will serve the Lord for He is our God. In verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good to you. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. Which implies that while they were in the wilderness, right, they had in conquering land, they had foreign gods. They weren't worshiping the Lord. 
And incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God. We will obey His voice. And then verse 25-28, through 28, He makes a covenant with them. They pledge their obedience to the Lord. And things, by the way, were good in the days of Joshua, but Joshua by this time is getting older. As soon as Joshua dies, the next generation drifted. Judges, you're right there. Go to Judges chapter 2. The story picks up right where we left off in verse 6. Judges 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen the great work of the Lord, which had done for Israel. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died in the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnatharis, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, yet the work nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. And then verse 11 and, and following, just tell the story about the judges, about how Israel was suppressed, how they were serving the Baals, they got in trouble, they cried out to the Lord, God raised up a judge to deliver them. And then when they delivered him, they were following the Lord. When the judge died, they turned back and went and were worse than before. And we could, we could read this. Let's pick it up in verse 16. And then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. This is after their idolatry and after God's hand was, was against them. And yet they did not listen to their judges. For they played the harlot after their own gods and bowed themselves down to them. And they turned aside quickly from the way which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning because of those who were oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died, they'd turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. And they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. Israel, idol worshippers. They did not abandon their practices nor their stubborn ways. They just went after the ways of the nations. You've got to catch it. This is, this is Israel. These are God's people. God's people on earth are idol worshippers. It's a cycle of the judges. And, and it even says here, right, that they're worse than before. They became more corruptly than their fathers. And it's, just a, it's just a downward spiral that was taking place. They're just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until they came to even the last judge, Samuel. Samuel's, Samuel followed the Lord. Samuel's sons did not follow the Lord. First Samuel chapter 8. Let's go over there. 1 Samuel chapter 8, you read in verses 1 through 3. Verse 3, right? His sons didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. And then we pick it up here in verse 4. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together. They'd done this judges thing for 400 years. And for 400 years, the testimony is that Israel is just drifting into idolatry. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel Ramah. And they said, Behold, you've grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge like all the nations. Like 
The judges were the problem, right? We need a king. That's going to solve our problem. But listen, external things don't solve the heart problem. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord because Samuel knew in Pentateuch, I think it's Deuteronomy 17, that speaks about not, not having a king. Because I, the Lord your God, is a king. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice, how you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. God just says, I brought these people from Egypt, but their testimony for 400 years is a testimony of disobedience and idolatry forsaking the Lord. That's a testimony of sin and how far sin has gone to affect each and every single one of us. So, Samuel warned against them. You can read about that in chapter 8. Even in the inaugural day, 1 Samuel chapter 12, he's saying, what a bad idea this is, guys! And went ahead and got a king. Their first king, Saul, was a horrible king. David was a great king. And then Solomon was an interesting king, but he shows as another lesson of the fall of men. First Kings chapter eleven. So let's go over Second Samuel, First Kings chapter eleven. Here we get the, the summary of Solomon's life in, in some regard. God gave Solomon wisdom that was unsurpassed in all the world. God gave Solomon a great discernment, breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was a wise man. He gave him riches that were unsurpassed. In Solomon's day, the riches of Israel were so much that silver was as common as stones in Jerusalem. Built this glorious temple for the glory of God. Saw the Shekinah of God. Knew the wisdom of the Scripture. Wrote whatever, 3,000 Proverbs. Was a wise, wise man. And yet... How did God, Solomon respond to the incredible blessings of God? It's a testimony to the extent of the fall in our lives. 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women among the daughter, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love rather than clinging to God's commandments says, stay away from them. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Turned his heart away after the gods. And his heart was not holy, devoted to the Lord his God, as had been the heart of David his father had been. Now, look at what Samuel did. For Sol- Solomon, rather. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. I mean, this, this is equivalent, guys, to the smartest Bible teacher in the land bringing into his house and his country and his city and his church Hindu gods. It's like the best parallel that I can find. It's unbelievable. 
and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol in Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol for the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Here it is. The, the man who knew the consequence of infidelity in marriage had 700 wives. The wisest man who ever lived became an idolater. That ought to teach you that it's not the, the smartest, wisest who will get to God. It's the, the humble who get to God. It's not the richest. It's not the wealthiest. It's the poor in spirit. And Solomon ought to convince you of that. His testimony is really a testimony of our fallen hearts. As a result of his sin, the kingdom divided into two nations. Israel in the north, following Jeroboam. Judah in the south, following Rehoboam. So the kingdom was shattered into two. And of the twenty kings in the north, they're all wicked idolaters. And of the twenty kings in the south, if you count Athaliah as a queen, less than half of them can be considered good and godly kings who worship the Lord. Just the testimony. Here were, here were God's people. I mean, this isn't the United States. This is Israel. This is God's people. This is under a theocracy. And under a theocracy, you, you have less than half in the good part. So less than 25%. We're good and godly kings. Well, time fails us to go through the Psalms. We can find sin in the Psalms, just the effects of sin, the, the, the fighting, the wars, the depression that sin causes. We could look in the prophets. I mean, the prophets of anybody. This is where it's all over them. The, the cry of the prophets is to repent of your sinful ways. You will read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, huge portions of Scripture, and all they say is, repent Israel, repent Israel, judgment is coming, repent Israel. And Isaiah's ministry was very small, because God said it was going to be small. Jeremiah was hated by people. He was left back in Jerusalem, thrown in pits on several occasions, exiled to Egypt with the people there. Well, let's look at one last prophet. Since my text is Malachi chapter 4, we're going to we're going to get there. And so, Malachi chapter 4, very last book in the New Te- Old Testament. Right for the New Testament, we're going to look at the last two verses of Malachi. Last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi says this. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will rescue the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Start thinking about this. Elijah's coming before the terrible day of the Lord. It's like John the Baptist coming, preparing the way for Jesus. And what's Elijah going to do? He's going to restore the hearts of fathers to the children, the hearts of children to their fathers. In other words, often not the case where parents have a heart for their kids and where kids have a heart for their parents. It's the oddity where that's the case. Parents and children often have broken relationships. I know there's some of you who are experiencing that now. Whether it's with your own children or whether it's with your parents. And 
And God says, I need to restore those relationships. Elijah is going to come back and restore those relationships. But that is a sign of the sinfulness of man when families can't live together. It's an effect of the fall. And we all know, I mean, we had prayer meeting here last Sunday and we're thinking and reflecting upon our Thanksgiving. And rare was the testimony that said, you know, where, where I had Thanksgiving, I was with my family and things were wonderful and unified. In almost every case, I remember most people said, you know what, holiday time is a very stressful time because our family is pretty dysfunctional. We don't relate together, brother, sister, don't relate to our parents. It's just, a, it's just kind of a mess. That's a sign of the fall. You've got to see that. It's only, it's only going to change if someone comes in and helps and redeems. We can't get along at home. I found out a fact this week about polar bears. You know, those big, white, furry, lovable creatures that walk in the Arctic Circle. Majestic beings of God's creation. Their diet mostly consists of seals, sometimes an occasional walrus or a or a small young whale. But you know there are times when an adult male will kill its cubs and eat its cubs? It's barbaric. We don't even, I don't even want to think about nice, nice clean polar bear eating his child. But you know what? That's what happens in many families. Members of the same household bite and devour one another with harmful words and sinful actions. In a fallen world, it's, a, it's commonplace. And that's why Elijah came so as to prepare the way for Messiah to come. And so, so I trust we've been going through this fall about the sin of people, the sin of people. Even Solomon has given all this wisdom. was a sinful man. We need a Redeemer to come. And, and praise the Lord, God's Redeemer has come. So turn to the New Testament. We're going to sneak over here. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Anticipate, we'll talk about next week in the, the Redeemer. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. It says this, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And, and there, that whole perspective about the fullness of time. And we just, we zip through the whole Old Testament. And skipping over a lot part, obviously. But, but there you see the time is coming. But when the time is full, and when things are ready, and we see the full effect of the fall, and we, we know we need a Messiah, and when, when things were just right according to prophecy, and the time was right, that's when God sent His Son, Jesus born as a son, born under the law, the purpose He might redeem those who were under the law. Elijah came to prepare the way for the Messiah and the good news is this, that Messiah has come in the person of Jesus. And He's come to redeem us out of this fallen condition. The good news is this, that we can be redeemed even today just believing and trusting in Him.